Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Acts, chapter 18, and verse 1. <clears throat> Acts 18.1, for our message from the Word of God this morning. Acts 18.1 will be located on page 1174 if you're using the church Bible. Today's date is February 12th, 2023. Today's text will begin in Acts 18.1 and go on down through <clears throat> verse 11. And the title of this morning's message is The Establishing of the Corinthian Church. The Establishing of the Corinthian Church. And we begin with the story of something that happened one evening when Vladimir Putin walked into a bar with a fly on top of his head. The bartender was brave enough to tell him, you can't come in here with that filthy thing attached to you. It spreads disease, and I run a clean establishment. And the fly said, Sorry, but it's stuck to my feet. <laughs> Talking to the flies. What are you just doing? Yeah. <clears throat> well, speaking of clean establishments, here in Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul is about to establish a church in the city of Corinth. And the story begins in verse 1, where we read these words. After these things, after Paul finished preaching to all those philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Now, if the city of Corinth sounds familiar, it's because after Paul establishes a church here, he later wrote two of his 13 epistles to these very Corinthians. And Paul's approach to establishing this church is going to be different than the way he established some of those other churches. See if you notice the difference as we read the next two verses of our text in Acts 18. Beginning in verse 2, it says that Paul found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, <clears throat> with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. And finding them, verse 2 ends by saying that Paul came unto them. And because he was of the same craft as Aquila and Priscilla, he abode with them and wrought for by their occupation, they were tent makers. Now, normally, when the Apostle Paul entered a new city, he made a beeline for where? The synagogue to preach to the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue. And he's going to get around to that in a minute. But here we have to ask, why he decided to break protocol <laughs> and apply for a job before going to preach in the synagogue. And the answer is, Paul did not want the people of Corinth to think that he was after their money. You see, 
Corinth was a tremendously wealthy city. It was a seaport city. And seaports always had a lot of commercial traffic coming in and out. Commercial traffic that enriched the people in those seaports. And Corinth was a double seaport. It was located on an isthmus, uh, a narrow strip of land between two bigger pieces of land with a body of water on each side. You've heard of the Isthmus of Panama. Well, the Isthmus of Panama is so narrow they were able to build a canal across it, right? Well, the Isthmus of Corinth was even narrower and that allowed them to build a city that spanned the Isthmus. So Corinth had a seaport on both sides, folks. That means they had twice the commercial traffic coming in and out and twice the wealth of other seaports. You may remember back in 1974, the Chrysler Corporation hired... The actor Ricardo Montalban to make a TV commercial advertising their top of the line model, the Chrysler Imperial De Baron. And I can still remember him saying that the seats were made from fine Corinthian leather. <laughs> Who remember that? Anybody? Well, caught my ear because I knew where Corinth was and the history of it. But it shows that Corinth has historically been associated with, with wealth and, and affluence. And Paul did not want the people of Corinth to think that he was some religious huckster who came to town to swindle them out of their money. Because there were a lot of preachers doing that in those days. So before he starts preaching in the synagogue, he got a job to, to support himself in the ministry while he was in the city of Corinth. Now, we're not told why Claudius, the emperor of Rome, evicted all the Jews. But... Jews were always hated, folks, because they were different than other people. You know your Bible well enough to know they ate certain foods and didn't eat certain foods. They, they didn't wear clothing made of two different kind of fabrics, right? And they were different in a whole lot of other ways as well. And I know I don't have to tell you, People are naturally prejudiced against anybody who's different, right? God says the same thing about Israel in your first reference in Jeremiah 12 and verse 9. Talking about Israel, he says, My heritage is unto me as a speckled bird, and the birds round about are against her. Isn't that interesting? Evidently, birds of a feather flock together because birds that are not of a feather hate birds who are not of their feather. I don't know. Maybe because they're different. So, to get to the point, if you're watching this message online or listening to our recording and you don't like certain people because they're a different color than you, then you've got more in common with an unsaved Roman emperor than you do with your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you feel that way, you might not want to visit our church because you're not going to like what you find here. <laughs> but, getting back to the text, Paul was glad that Claudius evicted Aquila and Priscilla because when he found them, he applied for a job because he was a tent maker too. Before he became a, 
a, a famous rabbi, his father taught him to be a tent maker, just like the Lord's father taught him to be a carpenter. And you know what? Tent making was the perfect trade for the guy who tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15 to study rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, when we tell Christians that the Bible has to be divided between the parts written to us in the body of Christ and the parts written to the people of Israel, they sometimes accuse us of cutting up the Bible and throwing away the parts that aren't written to us. <laughs> but listen, that is not how the Apostle Paul made tents, is it? He'd cut up the fabrics, but then he would sew the parts back together in order to make something useful, right? And that's what we do after we divide the Scriptures. We sew the parts back together to make the Scriptures into something useful. <clears throat> Listen, a Bible that contradicts itself is of no use to anybody. And the Bible does contradict itself if you don't rightly divide it. Now, Sometimes when the Bible talks about Aquila and Priscilla, she gets mentioned first, about half the times actually. And at BBS, I sometimes get asked why that is. And it might be just because she was the more outgoing personality, and so naturally she would come to mind first. But it also might be because eventually those two became Paul's co-workers, his partners in the ministry. So he probably stayed with them from time to time. And when a couple has guests, it's generally the wife who does most of the hosting. That would also explain why not just Paul, but also Luke, who wrote the book of Acts here, sometimes mentions her first. Because, as you know, Luke traveled with Paul too. So Priscilla and Aquila probably hosted Luke as well. Either way, now that Paul's got a job, he can start preaching in the synagogue, as you see in verse 4. Verse 4 says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And I bet Paul preached pretty hard in Corinth because of what he saw in the city of Corinth. Well, back in Athens, he got all stirred up to preach really hard because he saw the idolatry in the city. Remember that in our scripture reading this morning? But Corinth here, they weren't famous for idolatry. They were famous for immorality. You see, seaports had a lot of sailors coming ashore. <laughs> Did you ever hear anybody say, that guy's got the morals of a sailor. <laughs> and as a double seaport... Corinth had twice the number of sailors as other cities. And the sailors weren't the only ones causing the immorality and the debauchery either, folks. The passengers coming ashore from those ships on either seaport, they were far away from home where they had to worry about what people thought about them. So they behaved themselves. But here in Corinth, they figured, eh, you know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? And I say all that to remind you of something. 
I say all that to remind you that the church in Corinth was also known for their carnality, their immorality, their fornication. And now you know why it was such a problem in the church in Corinth. They were surrounded by immorality. Now, that explains the immorality in the Corinthian church, but folks, it does not excuse it. I know defense attorneys will sometimes stand up in front of the judge and try to get a thief off the hook because, well, your honor, he grew up in a high crime area, you know. And and listen, that doesn't excuse anything. Plenty of people come from bad neighborhoods and decide to do what's right instead of what's wrong. At some point, you just got to make... Uh, so take some personal responsibility, right? Especially if you're a Christian. Folks, you can make the grace of Almighty God shine all the brighter if you live godly in an ungodly world, right? Sure you can. But here... I'm afraid no matter how hard Paul preached when he saw the immorality in Corinth, uh, it didn't come to a whole lot. And I also know that as we get to verse 5, no matter how hard he was preaching, he steps up his game and preaches harder because of something that happens in verse 5. Verse 5 it says, And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and he testified to those Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now, here again, you see the importance of fellowship with other believers. I mean, if fellowship got the Apostle Paul's juice is flowing. <laughs> Probably you need some too, don't you think? But there was also something else in verse 5 that got Paul's juices flowing and made him preach all the harder. He got news from Timothy from Thessalonica, something we read about in our scripture reading this morning. Remember we saw that the the unsaved Jews drove Paul out of Thessalonica, right? That happened just in the last chapter. When that happened, Paul knew that those unsaved Jews would start persecuting the church, the members of the church that he left behind. And that would that made him start to worry that maybe that intense persecution, they were trying to kill him, maybe that would make those new Thessalonian believers fall away from the faith. So he wrote him a letter in your next reference in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-5. And he told them, I've been worrying, and when we could no longer forbear, when I couldn't stand it any longer, We thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Remember, he was waiting for them at Athens. And he sent sent Timotheus to establish you, Thessalonians, and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions that set in after I left. And for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith. Now listen, when Paul starts that passage there by saying we thought it good to be left alone, let me assure you, the Apostle Paul never thought it good to be left alone. He craved fellowship from other believers the way you crave White Castles. Come on, admit it. Once a year you got to have them. But when Paul was in Athens, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica, even though that left him alone 
because he just had to know if the Thessalonians were standing firm in the faith. And it's as we read on in that passage in your next reference, it says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 and 7, When Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith, we were comforted over you in all of our affliction and distress by your faith. Timothy came back with news that they were standing firm in the faith. And that's what got Paul's juices going here in verse 5 because this is where he gets the news. When he heard that they were standing in the faith, it pressed him in the spirit and it energized him. And he put the pedal to the metal and started preaching like nobody's business. And that's something that you might want to remember on those Sunday mornings when you're finding it hard to get out of bed and go to church. Because folks, you need to see the members of your church family standing faithfully for the truth. If you're going to have any hope of being faithful yourself, that's just how it works. We all need to see one another standing. But no matter how pressed in the spirit Paul was or how hard he preached in that Jewish synagogue, didn't seem to matter because as we read on, we see in verse 6, when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and he said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth, I will go to the Gentiles. Now when it says they they opposed themselves, that, that means they contradicted themselves when they tried to argue from the Scriptures with the Apostle Paul. And when they found themselves contradicting themselves, well that just ticked them off. (laughs) Made them angry. Angry enough to blaspheme. And that made Paul do something that the Lord told the twelve apostles to do in your next reference. Matthew 10, 5-14. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go, preach, and whosoever shall not hear your words, like we're seeing here in Thessalonica, I'm, I'm sorry, in Corinth, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Well, isn't that what we just read Paul did in verse 6? He shook his raiment there. Now, what that was there in Matthew 10 was a, a symbolic gesture. It was kind of like the one that Pilate gave in your next reference in Matthew 27, 24. Remember when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather uh, a tumult was made? He, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Talking about Christ. You see to crucifying him. When Pilate tried to release the Lord, those unsaved Jews just kept demanding he be crucified. So Pilate washed his hands of the Lord. That was his symbolic way of saying, I'm clean from the blood of this this just man. Or at least he thought he was. (laughs) He wasn't really. But Paul's gesture here of shaking the dust of those Jews off, that was his way of saying the same thing. I am clean from your blood because I've warned you that you need to get saved. But now that brings up a serious question. Does that mean if Paul hadn't warned them that 
somehow, in some way, he'd have been guilty of their blood? And the answer to that question is yes. At least according to the verse that he's quoting. In your next reference, you'll see he's quoting what God told the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3, 18 and 19. This is God talking to Ezekiel. He says, When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die. And thou, Ezekiel, givest him no warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way. The same wicked man will die in his iniquity. Get what's coming to him. But his blood will I require thine hand, because you didn't warn him. Yet, if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he'll die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Hmm. Now, this is something I get asked about at BBS now and then. Christians write me and ask, if we don't give the gospel to a man and he dies and goes to hell, does that mean his blood is on us for not warning him? And as I am sure I don't have to tell you, that's a very troubling thought for these believers. But here you have to remember Paul was an apostle and Ezekiel was a prophet. That means both men were God's official spokesmen of the day in their dispensations, right? So if they didn't do their jobs, it would mess with the entire program of God in either dispensation. Now, keep that in mind, because that explains what Paul says in your next reference in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17, where he told these very Corinthians, Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel for a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. Now, in that passage, Paul isn't saying that God expected him as a Christian to dispense the gospel to people he ran into in life. He did do that. That's just not what he's talking about there. He was saying God expected him to dispense the gospel so that Christians would have a gospel to give to people. That's the only way to explain what he says in Acts 20, 26 and 27. Your next reference is there. In Acts 20, 26, I'm sorry, the first reference there, Paul says, I am pure from the blood of all men. Well, how could Paul say he was free or pure from the blood of every man on the planet because he certainly hadn't even met every man on the planet, let alone shared the gospel with all men, right? But look how he finished his words there in the next passage, next reference in Acts 20, 26 and 27. He said, I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the gospel, the counsel of God, or all the counsel of God. Now that word for there, folks, means that he was pure from the blood of all men because he supplied the gospel to the pastors he was talking to so they could reach the blood of all men, I should say. He knew that if he supplied the gospel to those pastors, 
They would give it to other pastors who would give it to others. And that's how Paul was pure from the blood of all men on the planet. And to bring it home to you folks, you can't be guilty of the blood of any of, of any man that way, right? This is a, an apostolic kind of a thing. Now, if that's not clear to you, think about it this way. If I'm unsaved and you share the gospel with me and I reject it, would you say, all right, I'm not giving the gospel to any more Polacks. From now on, I'm going to the Mexicans. Would you, would you, would you wouldn't say that. But isn't that what Paul's saying here? Your blood is on you Jews from henceforth. I'm going to the Gentiles. Well, folks... We don't have the God-given authority to make pronouncements like that. But Paul did. And here's another difference. Paul said, Woe is unto me if I don't dispense the gospel. Well, that's not our motivation to share the gospel, is it? Our motivation to preach the gospel is not to avoid any kind of woe. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-20, it's the love of Christ that constrains us. It constrains us that they which live, live eternally, we which are saved, should not henceforth live unto ourselves, but unto Him which died for us. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's debt, be ye reconciled to God. It's the love of Christ that constrains us to share the gospel as ambassadors of Christ. It's not the fear of what Christ is going to do to you if you don't. See the difference? Well, when Paul told the Jews in verse 5 there, from henceforth I will go to the Gentiles, didn't that sound an awful lot like what he told the Jews back in your next reference there in Acts 13.46? It was necessary that the Word of God should first have been spoken to you, you Jews. But seeing you put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, there he said, I'm turning to the Gentiles, right? Here he says, I will go to the Gentiles. And in verse uh, 6 or 7 here, I'm sorry, what verse are we in? 6. From henceforth I will go to the Gentiles. That word henceforth means from this time forward I'm going to the Gentiles. (laughs) Now, the problem with that is, we saw in our scripture reading, Paul just got finished going to a whole hill of Gentiles on Mars Hill in Athens, right? That was just a few verses ago in chapter 17. So how could he say he was going to the Gentiles from this time forward, from henceforth? He must mean, from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles in a different way. And people who are a whole lot smarter than me, and there's a lot of them, people who are smarter than me, about, especially about Bible timing and geography, they tell me this is where Paul begins to write letters to the Gentiles, going to them in a different way. Hey, we know that he wrote the epistle of 1 Thessalonians from here because he told them he was glad to hear you. they were standing in the faith and he just heard that from Timothy. 
In fact, he even said in your next reference in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith. So this is where Paul starts writing epistles to Gentiles. But it wasn't the last time he washed his hands of the Jews. He, he did it a third time. He did it in Acts 13. He's doing it here. And look at your next reference in Acts 28. At the end of the book, in verses 27 and 28, he's talking to the Jews who haven't received the gospel. And he says, The heart of this people is waxed gross. And their ears are dull of hearing. And their eyes have they closed the gospel, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted. So then he makes another third, final, official pronouncement. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent Unto the Gentiles. Well, you know, in those days you couldn't send an email. You had to send an epistle. And that's what Paul did beginning here in Corinth, evidently. By the way, have you ever heard of the three-strike rule? I'm not talking about the rule that applies when one of the Cubs batters gets up to bat. I'm I'm talking about the law in some states that says if you commit three crimes, that's three strikes, and you're out. And they lock you up and throw away the key. Well, folks, that's what happened to the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, in the book of Acts. In your next reference, in Romans 11-12, talking about Israel, it says the fall of them talks about the fall of them and the diminishing of them. After the Jews fell in Acts 7 when they stoned Stephen, they diminished during the rest of the book of Acts. Till they got that third strike in Acts 28 when Paul pronounced judgment on them for the last time. Then God locked them up, but he didn't throw away the key, folks. Israel is just going to stay locked up until after the rapture when they become his people again. But here in this passage, in the meantime, Paul's going out starting churches among the Gentiles. And you see one in verse 7. Paul departed from that synagogue and entered into a certain man's house named Justice. A man that worshipped God and his house joined hard to the synagogue. Now who's this guy? Uh, If you look his name up in your concordance, you'll see that there's a couple of different Jews in the New Testament named Justice. But I think this Justice, I think this Justice was a Gentile. Because if he were a Jew, he'd have been in the synagogue next door when Paul was in there preaching, right? By the way, when I read verse 7, this is how I, I, I picture Paul storming out of the synagogue and then entering into this guy's house. So, either Paul was guilty of breaking and entering, <laughs> or Justice was home, sitting on his porch, and he invited Paul to come into his house when he saw him storm out of the synagogue. So, I think Justice was a Gentile who lived in this house right next door to the synagogue. So right next door to the synagogue, it says that it joined hard to the synagogue. In other words, they they shared a common wall where you can hear what your neighbors are up to, you know. That kind of a a thing. Excuse me. Uh, And uh, listen, the church at Corinth was established when that Gentile got saved that day. That's how it got started. In his house. Now I know verse 7 says that he already worshipped God before Paul got there. That doesn't mean he was saved though. 
Give you a little homework. Super Bowl doesn't start till 5.30. Go home and look up and you'll see, look up, look up Acts 10. And read what it says about Cornelius before he gets saved. It says he worshiped God. So justice here, he's not saved yet. But he's worshiping the God of Israel. Because he knows that the God of Israel is the true God. Well, if he knows the God of Israel is the true God, how come he didn't convert to Judaism and become what the Bible calls a a, a proselyte? Well, I can't be sure. But if I had to guess, I think it was because he suspected that, that this famous Jew named Jesus was Israel's Christ. And those Jews in the synagogue next door, they didn't believe that Jesus was Israel's Christ. But as he's sitting on his porch, he overhears what's going on in the synagogue, because I'm sure Paul got quite loud with those guys. He overhears Paul say that Jesus was the Christ. So when Paul storms out, he invites him in and says, tell me more. I want to hear more about Jesus being the Christ. And when that Gentile got saved, in your next verse in your Bible, it caused a Jew to get saved. Look at verse 8. Not just any Jew. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians believed, it says, and were baptized. So now we got to ask, well, why would the ruler of the synagogue get saved after he sees a Gentile get saved? Well, we talked about this. Remember what Paul said to the Romans in Romans 11 and verses 13 and 14? I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I'm the apostle of the Gentiles and I magnify my office of apostleship to the Gentiles. Why? If by any means I might provoke to emulation, to jealousy, them which are of my flesh and might save some of them. And it worked with Christmas, didn't it? Every Sabbath day, he probably walked past Justice, sitting on his porch. I bet he prayed for the guy. But Justice never decides to become a proselyte. So when Paul was able to convert him, Crispus was provoked to jealousy by that, and he decides to get saved too. And because Crispus was the ruler of that synagogue, that explains what Paul wrote later to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 14-16. He's writing to these Corinthians later and he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you, but who? <laughs> but Crispus and Gaius and a few other people there. Well, as Paul's sitting there trying to remember, who did I baptize in, in Corinth? That was easy to remember Christmas because he was the ruler of the synagogue and the first convert in the city from the Jews. So he's the first one Paul remembers there, baptizing there. But just think of how, how embarrassing it was for the Jews in that synagogue to have their pastor quit and go to the church next door. I mean, that's got a smart... <laughs> And make you angry. And and then just when the Jews in the synagogue thought things couldn't possibly get worse than their pastor leaving and defecting, it says at the end of verse 8 there that many Corinthians believed and got converted too. Well, how embarrassing would that be for them to think, well, Gee, we've been here all these years. How come we couldn't get those Gentiles to convert? Paul shows up in a couple weeks and he's got... And that provoked them to envy. And you know what what else provoked them to envy? 
when the Corinthians started speaking in tongues, those Jews got really jealous. And that's because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.22. What did he say about tongues? Tongues are for a sign to them that believe not. Tongues were a sign to unbelievers, right? But not just to any unbelievers. Look what Paul says in the next reference in 1 Corinthians 1.22. The Jews require a sign. So those tongues in the church in Corinth, they were assigned to the unbelieving Jews next door to provoke them to jealousy. You see, those miraculous signs in the Bible belong to the people of Israel. The psalmist says in Psalm 74.9, he's praying and he says, we see not our signs. When the Jews were disobedient to God, God took their miraculous signs away. Well, hey folks, when they crucified Christ and stoned Stephen, I'd call that being disobedient, don't you? So, God took the tongues that He gave Israel at Pentecost in Acts 2, took them away from them. And that was a sign to them that God was judging them. We can't get into that, but that that's a whole other study there we could get into. But then, to add insult to injury, God took their tongues away and gave them to the Gentiles. Oh man, you talk about one got smart. And that provoked those Jews to so much jealousy, they wanted to kill Paul. You say, well, how do you know that? <laughs> well, I know that because in the very second chapter of the first letter he wrote, him, look what he said in 1 Corinthians 2 3. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, you don't read that here, in the, but that's, what it, that's what's happening behind the scenes. He was petrified because he knew the Jews were trying to kill him. Folks, if they weren't trying to kill him, how else would you explain what happens in verse 9 in your Bible? In the very next verse, it says, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Paul. Speak! Hold not thy peace. Well, why would God, out of the blue there, tell Paul, Don't be afraid, unless the Jews were making him afraid? Right? See how these uh, the epistle works with the what you the historical record you're reading here. But now he's got God's word on it that nobody's going to hurt him. So he decides to speak now and never hold his peace because he's also got God's word uh, on it. That or let's read verse ten. For I am with thee, and no man shall sit on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. Now he's not only got God's word that nobody's going to hurt him. Now he hears God's got a lot of people in the city. So what does he mean by that? He's got the town. There's not a lot of Christians in town yet. Now our Calvinist friends say that well. He meant God chose a lot of different ones in, in Corinth to be saved, and so even though they weren't saved yet, they were his people. But we know that's not how it works. God doesn't choose who needs who gets saved. You do. You have to choose to believe and be saved. So what he's really talking about here when he, is the people he mentioned in your next reference. Let's put it that way. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28. When he says he's got much people in Corinth, this is what he's talking about. Later, Paul wrote the Corinthians, he says, you see your calling, brother. Look around you. Look around in the church. And you'll see that not many wise men after the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world 
to confound the things which are mighty and things which are despised hath God chosen and things which are not. Those are the people the Lord was talking about when he told Paul, I got much people in this city. When God looked at Corinth, he saw a lot of simple, humble people, sinful people who knew they needed a Savior. And because of that, they were much more likely to get saved than all those wise men in Athens. Not many wise are called, right? And once Paul heard God say that nobody was going to hurt him and stop him from reaching those people, what does it say in the last verse in your text, in verse 11? He continued there a year and six months, year and a half, teaching the Word of God among them. He stayed in Corinth longer than any other city so far. And that church became the biggest church that he established. Do you know what that means? That means when you see the world around you getting more and more and more immoral all the time, you know what you should say? Bless God. Praise the Lord, because those people are like the Corinthians. They're much more likely to get saved than people who aren't humble and sinful and immoral. What did the Lord say to the Pharisees in your last reference? In Matthew 21.31, The harlots are going to go into the kingdom of God before you do. (laughs) I love that verse. I mean, can't you just picture what happened when he said that? One guy I looked at the other and said, did he just say the hookers are going to go into the kingdom of heaven before, before, before our religious leaders are going to go in? There? Yes, that's what he did say. Because they knew they needed a Savior. They weren't like the self-righteous Pharisees. And folks, that's when you look and see the world getting more and more like the Corinthians, just say, praise the Lord. More of those people are going to get saved than anybody else. Aren't you glad you were foolish and despised enough to believe the gospel? I know I am. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful once again for the tenacity of the Apostle Paul. No matter what he encountered in any city, he shook the dust off and went to another. And he dispensed the gospel so that we would have it today. We pray, Father, that he might not have done all that and gone through all that in vain. Give us the heart that he had to share that gospel with people who need to know to come to know Christ. Pray it all in the Savior's name. Amen. Amen.